0: Life is a blank canvas, and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers, and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Greetings, everyone. Another year is clocked over. It's certainly been a turbulent year across the planet, hasn't it? I guess 2021 presents a giant blank canvas, so let's make the most of it. I've got a wonderful array of guests coming your way. First up is one of Australia's most acclaimed filmmakers, Robert Conley. My conversation with Robert took place on the 8th of January and Robert's just found out his latest film, The Dry, has had a huge opening week. With many of the big foreign movies holding back their big tentpole releases over the holiday period, The Dry, which stars Eric Banner, has racked up over $12 million at the Aussie box office and it's still going strong. Well, it's certainly a happy start to the new year for Robert and Australian cinema. Robert's other films include The Boys, The Bank, $3, The Turning, Romulus, My Father, Balabo and the Aussie classic Paper Planes. Robert's television work is equally impressive. Underground, the Julian Assange story, Gallipoli, Barracuda, the Emmy and BAFTA-nominated slap, to name just a few. In fact, Robert's won over 20 major Australian and international awards for his work. One of my personal favourites is Deep State. It's a British eight-part espionage thriller starring Mark Strong, which was for the Fox Network. Robert was the set-up director for the series and did the first four eps. Whether directing, producing, writing, mentoring other filmmakers, or supporting the screen sector as a whole, Robert's a wonderful storyteller and brings such humanity to his work. It's a real pleasure to kick off the Blank Canvas for 2021 with Robert Conley. Good morning. Lovely to chat with you, Lee. You too, mate. Where do I find you today?
1: I'm over in the hills outside of Perth in Bickley uh, in a quarantine house, thankfully. I've done this before in a hotel. It's much better in a house. But it's a big kind of beautiful, I've got a deck and I can walk around the garden and you know, there's a lovely guy who's the landlord who brings me a coffee every day. Come on, it's not (laughs) too bad. I can't complain.
0: Mate, well, yeah, you've definitely had a, a stellar first week of 2021 with your new movie, The Dry, opening to big business at the box office.
1: Yeah, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's been a bit surreal to be locked up here waiting to do my next film, but it's been absolutely delightful to see the um, massive Australian audiences going back to the cinema to see it. It's been exciting. You know, I've always loved that experience of going to the movies myself and I think everyone feared for a long time that cinemas wouldn't even open again. So it's been really, really exciting to see people going back.
0: Yeah, I bet. Congratulations, mate. It's a fine film. I was I was there on the 2nd, 2nd of January, and, yeah, it was, it was as full as it was allowed to be with the, um, you know, COVID restrictions and, yeah, people loved it.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the expectation with COVID was that kind of audiences would drop away and take a long time to come back. But I think Exhibition has done so much wonderful work about social distancing, about cleanliness, about new practices. I mean, they've really done so much work to kind of invite people to feel that their cinema experience is a safe place. Um, but I also think coming out the other side of, such a tough year. You know, we can't. You know, the, the pinnacle of 21st century civilization cannot be staying at home seven nights a week, binging on shows on Netflix. Now, come on. You <laughs> know, we're we're social animals, um, and I know that. You know, there's wonderful work, and it's in no way a criticism of some of the incredible work that is being made for streaming. I just feel like you know, live music, cinema, theatre. I can, you know, just going out for dinner in a in a restaurant in the local area and chatting with people you love. I, I can see all of this flourishing in the year ahead.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think we all realise we've kind of taken for granted those communal experiences, haven't we, over the years? We've been so fortunate, particularly in this country, and um, suddenly we're kind of like, wow, okay. We really need to enjoy each day, make the most of every day, every opportunity, every time you see your friends, your family, every dinner, every movie, it's precious.
1: It's interesting because I I know coming out of that time, you know, almost six months in Victoria, very much like what you're saying, like i go out for, you know, dinner with my wife and it just felt more important. It felt more significant, you know, looking at what to order on the menu felt like a treat, you know. I, I wonder if, you know, we got to a point where we just took for granted, you know, we'd become very over, kind of almost excessive in some way with things in our life, like even going to the the bottle shop down the road for me and talking to the guy that runs it and him recommending a bottle of wine and, do, you know, and it, it, as opposed to running into the local supermarket and grabbing it on the way home. Yeah. You know, I, I can see a, it's almost like I think of it like slow cooking, you know, the whole slow cooking movement. It's like, is is 2021 going to be the year when we really appreciate a kind of exposure to the world that maybe we've taken for granted? And and I love, I love that cinema is part of that narrative, the messages I'm getting from people who've been seeing the dry. It's wonderful. You know, my favourite one was, you know, we went to the cinema the other day and our 15-year-old was furious with us that we didn't get tickets to Wonder Woman and got tickets for The Dry instead. And um, But the good news is she loved the film. <laughs> so I, I thought, that's pretty cool.
0: That That's wonderful. Yeah, I found myself over the year, having watched a lot of TV drama online, just finding, oh, my God, there's an overwhelming number of shows and a, and there's a lot of great shows there. And going, I mean, how do we find, continue to find original um, scripted ways of storytelling with just such an onslaught of TV dramas out there? Um, Will we become, you know, bored with the medium? As filmmakers, will it become impossible to create fresh ways of surprising the audience without it becoming cliche? Yeah. Yeah. Yet, mm. yet I think that, you know, seeing the dry and not having been in the cinema for a while, it kind of answered my question in a way because I went, okay, the cinema experience still counts and if the storytelling's solid and it's shot for the big screen and I know you shot on, you know, large format cameras and you went to great efforts to make it a cinematic experience. So clearly there's still a place for that, which is wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's really um, interesting what audiences um, you know cr- kind of appetite for, for drama becomes in a world with so much drama available so many thousands of hours of really high quality drama available i spoke a few years ago with a hbo executive in the us and he was commenting at the point at that point on how hbo were, were watching audiences shifting massively to documentary series you know on a commercial level and um, and pulling a little bit away from some of their drama and he had a theory which which has kind of stayed with me that in a world where people are exposed to thousands of hours of drama they can see the kind of tricks of it you know they're aware of the writers room they can feel the contrived drama you know they can they can feel the kind of mechanics of the binge worthy twists and and it becomes inauthentic if you, if you look at a lot of it, the, the repeated tricks and techniques of it become inauthentic. And documentary obviously doesn't have that. It has its own uh, narrative aesthetic. And that's why I think there's great examples of TV where you can feel that filmmakers trying to make TV have that quality that documentary has. I, I think of that series I watched early in the year, early last year, Unorthodox. You wow. know, which I thought was a really great example of that. And yeah. and it, it somehow just took me inside this world, and I felt for a large part of that series like I was in in that surprising world of narrative that documentary does so well. Um, so I think this is a really interesting challenge for dramatists working in longer form television is how to keep an audience that might just start getting tired of some of the tropes of, um, you know, this binge-worthy kind of drama. And, um, and the great work, you know, pops to the surface because it's more authentic than that.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point you make. And, yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard for the commercial networks who, you know, have a commercial break to get through and yeah. their traditional use of cliffhangers and other devices to ensure you come back on the other side. People are less patient and tolerant of these devices now, aren't they?
1: they're very true yeah I think look I've got you know 18 and 16 year old daughters and if I look at that very impressive generation and, and hear them talk about things and they, they've, been, they've been brought up advertised to and marketed to and manipulated by everything and um, and I think they are very conscious of things being fake and inauthentic so I think you know, sometimes I look at drama and I, and you look at it and you go, gosh, isn't this a weird world we're in?" there's two actors playing people they're not (laughs) saying lines of dialogue written by someone else to create a drama, which is heading towards a hook. So people don't not watch the next episode, you know? And so how in that, in the mechanics of that, do you satisfy a younger audience that are really looking for that authentic quality and, uh, It's a really amazing, wonderful challenge for us all. And I think, you know, and certainly it's why I think Australians have really flocked to a lot of um, really interesting documentaries in recent years because they're looking for that that, uh, authenticity.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, mate. I guess as in any business, the cream rises to the top and the best storytellers and the best filmmakers and the ones that are able to imbue their story with authenticity and great performances and all the rest of it they'll still find a place and find a way of getting their work out there yeah
1: yeah that's right i think it, i actually like a challenge you know i remember someone early in my career saying um you know they're talking about the stock market and they said that there are people that make a lot of money when the stock market goes up because they're optimists and there are people that make a lot of money when the stock market goes down because they're pessimists but the people that make a really huge amount of money are the people that, that know how to navigate times that go up and down, like that that have no idea what's going on. And, uh, and I feel like that's kind of what we're in. I think we're in this time of, you know, we've had COVID thrown at us, we've had social unrest, we've had, um, you know, the challenges of global warming, of climate change. Or, you, I feel like the world is facing so many different things that are going on and we're not quite sure where it's gonna land. And in the screen industries too, it's like, everyone says, ah, oh, cinema's dead. It's all about streaming. And then, you know, this summer the dry comes out and it's working. And so that throws the needle a different direction. And and so I think the probably biggest approach we all have to take right now more than ever is to be innovative, you know, to be, to try new things, to see, to test and innovate in a time of uncertainty. Um, and I've I've always loved that. Actually, I think you know we we work in a, in a screen industry where you know sadly everyone wants to be the first person to do something second. You know, it's like how do you want it? How do you build the life around being the first person to do something first? It's a bit scarier. It's got a much higher risk um, profile, <laughs> and uh, I definitely find it. I, I find it gets the pulse going and the creative <laughs> juices <is> flowing.
0: <laughs> Well, you're, you're definitely one of those filmmakers, uh, producers, directors, writers that's managed to survive through the ups and downs in the business, through the good and the bad over, I guess, 30 years now. So you've clearly been pretty good at adapting to that. I've admired your work from the beginning because really I think The Boys was the first feature, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah I
1: remember you, me- meeting you back in those days, back in Bondi when you were making your first film too. You yeah. were an innovator back then. I mean, that idea, we were trying to make stuff, weren't we? It was that spirit of how do we do it? How do we shake it up? How do we come together and, as a community of filmmakers? And, yeah, that was the beginning, 96,
0: 97. yeah. Yeah no that that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, it was just kind of okay, find a way, wasn't it? And really long as the story's there and the performances are there and the authenticity is there, yeah. you don't have to have necessarily the production values and as much technique. Long as you've got something really compelling that people kind of you know want to keep watching then they'll sort of forgive some of those other, you know, technical imperfections. That was my kind of approach on the first one. And I think, yeah. I mean, honestly, The Boys was a blistering film. And, um, you know, I love Tristan Milani, who I know is a, yeah. you know, mutual friend. I loved his, his handheld camera work on that it was incredible. incredible. Yeah. Um, the cast you assembled, the script obviously was honed on stage and was a cracker. But, um, yeah, that made a real impression on me. And I've watched all your films since then and, and love them. Um, particularly, I mean, clearly, all of your films, I mean, it just keeps coming back to the authenticity thing. All of them are deeply authentic. I kind of always believe the characters in your films. I'm not sitting there as a director looking at the technique and going, oh, yeah, how do you do this and that? Once I'm in them, I'm in them. And it's not until after I'm like, holy shit, that, that just had me absolutely glued the whole way through so um yeah mate it's been a real joy to watch your journey tell me we'll come back to the dry and chat a bit more about that but um for the others that don't know your kind of background i know you grew up in the the blue mountains of new south wales how did you wind up from you know out west there essentially in the country to becoming a filmmaker
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I I never really imagined I could be a filmmaker. Uh, I had a mate up there um, who was making Super 8 films for fun and we were playing around a little bit with that. Um, I was trying to be an actor, doing a reasonably poor job of that but having fun. And as a young person, I was gravitating towards some creative interests. Um, But set against that, this is kind of, 1982 uh set against that I actually discovered I had a kind of heightened aptitude for computer game design and I know this is a surreal kind of parallel version of me that I think you know my wife joked years ago I, if I'd gone that path I'd be far wealthier than <laughs> I have been but um but I my my father had worked in computing and he traveled off to Silicon Valley he worked for the overseas telecommunication corporation and early computers and he brought home an Australian um, made home computer It was uh, pre-IBM PC and I had an aptitude for it and I wrote games on it and I managed to sell one of them to a company and at 15 I was making income from computer games and 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 it kind of seemed to marry a love of technology with a love of programming and just a kind of innate capacity to program these games and uh so when i was about 15 i was already doing that and we we moved from the blue mountains to the eastern suburbs of sydney uh lived in a house uh five minutes walk from the rambic ritz cinema and uh and shifted of kind of my life in a slightly different direction and you know, troubled uh, teenager as I was, I ended up changing schools to the local state school there and um, and giving giving away actually that computer kind of programming passion that I had, despite the fact that it was the only thing I'd ever made any money out of as a young fella. So that's kind of that foundation time. And then I guess from there, you know, I, I actually had a really inspirational teacher. I know it's a daggy idea, but you know, I had this really, really inspirational teacher. Uh, English teacher and uh, who kind of introduced me to a lot of theatre and, you know, um, the idea of maybe making a career in theatre evolved because filmmaking was, you know, I talk to a lot of young filmmakers now about this. I mean, filmmaking back then was a rich kid's sport, you know, you you couldn't shoot something on a phone or a little digital camera. You had to shoot on film and get it processed so even that act of having to buy film, get a camera, shoot it, pay for it to be processed, cost more money than any of us had. And so I just didn't imagine it was possible. So, But the theatre, however, felt like it was something, the Sydney theatre scene in the mid-'80s was pretty crazy and people doing co-op shows and getting together with their mates and putting plays on and, you know, I, it was very, very exciting and highly energised um, creative endeavour. I mean, I don't know. I've never really kind of looked at it forensically. There's some weird trajectory from writing computer programs to directing <laughs> theatre. It's it's some strange journey. Um,
0: well, the geeks anyway. inherit the earth, as they say. So you know, you were <laughs> you were there.
1: I know it's it's strange. I have to. I have to. It's funny. I just bought myself an Oculus Two VR headset thing for while I've been here in quarantine. I've been exploring that and. Maybe it's kind of tickled the historic fascination with gaming. Maybe maybe, maybe that chapter of my life's not over yet.
0: <laughs> Mate, how did you manage to get the first feature up? Because, you know, it was shot on film. I think it was shot on 16mm, the, the Boys, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. How it, did you um,
0: get the Bucks well, together? Well, I
1: was really lucky at film school uh, to... I saw this short film, Tran the Man, uh, directed by Rowan Woods that Tristan also shot and with David Wenham in it and I just thought it was incredible and I wasn't ready to consider being a director myself and I looked at Rowan's short and I just thought it was amazing and that, David Wenham and I put The Boys on as a play and we were talking about how to make it as a film and, um, and I think, you know, looking back on it, I mean, there were some amazing little things that clicked together like Rowan coming on board I was mentored by the legendary Australian producer, John Maynard, who then became a business partner and he came on board to help. And I think someone like Tristan, you know, the pinnacle of this incredible body of work he'd done was so ready. And I remember John Maynard saying to us all, I want all of you to be first-timers. He said, I don't want you, we're not going to take Rowan and give him the most experience, but I, I just want you all to be first-timers. <laughs> and I remember this first day on set, you're looking around and that Rowan's first film was a director, first-time DP, designer, costume designer, first, like everyone. Was like babes in the woods trying to work it all out. And I think that creative energy felt really uh, intoxicating. Um, but it's a miracle it was hard it was incredibly hard I mean it, it took amazing innovation and it took amazing innovation in the financing of it as well and you know it was a an incredible kind of example of planets lining up really a lot of people at a certain point of their career all desperate to burst out of the gate and have careers you know all coming together and working on this handcrafted film for not very much money and um you know it Kind of set all of our careers in motion. Really, that film. I look back on. We remastered it a couple of years ago. Tristan did a, a new digital remaster of it, and and I think it really holds up. You know, and I can't quite work out where a lot of the more intellectual rationale behind it came from back there in the mid '90s. You know, it, it it doesn't show violence. It, it like a lot of its its kind of political ambition is quiet quite powerful actually, in terms of what cinema can do badly and what cinema can do well. Uh, I think Rowan was incredibly and and is incredibly literate as a filmmaker and uh, really knew what he was doing in terms of putting it in the context of where cinema was at. And, of course, David Wenham, you know,
0: yeah incredible incredible yeah and what about your script writing mate you've kind of evolved that and become a bit of a master over the years did you end up doing script writing at film school or anything or did you just learn along the way
1: yeah I've kind of I've learned along the way um and I've collaborated with a lot of people and I've worked with a lot of great writers that I haven't written for and I've written like it's curious it's happened as a evolution across my career that I've ended up having written so much of the work I've done interestingly not having ever perceived myself as a writer it's, it's almost like there are some writers I read their work and I feel like they're just the g- genius writers and I feel more like I'm you know what someone described you know a screenplay can be the architect's plans for a building and you know, they don't tell you what colour the wallpaper is, how people will live in the house, where the furniture is, where, you know. But if you get the architect's plans really well, then um, yeah, the, the house will be a great house that people can live in. So I, I feel like with a film, my approach to writing's always been that a script is written three times um, on the page, during the shoot and in the edit. And so I think some great writers, which I wouldn't pretend to be, can write a screenplay that is ready. I think I tend to write quite good architect's plans (laughs) and then when I'm directing I loosen it up a bit and improvise and then in the edit you know the edits of my films are usually quite long and involve reshoots and and something like the dry is a great example of that it kind of evolves again the script and then you end up at the end of the film with if, if you then at the very end of the film took the film and turned it into a script and compared it to where you began, that would be the interesting exercise <laughs> to see, um, yeah, how, how much has changed. But I've been helped a lot along the way, you know, I think on the drive and um, Samantha Strauss, an um, incredible writer came and did just a few weeks work on it actually, but really elevated a lot of character detail and, and humour and, I think it's probably this embracing this idea that it's more of a collaborative journey. You know, I think in theatre you have a play, the text of a play, and they almost transcend time more than the production of the play. Whereas I think it's the opposite in a film. Yeah. Um, so you know, you think of the great plays of Tennessee Williams, for example, that transcend any individual production. Absolutely. We're um, looking for a definitive uh, truth in the in the script.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense, mate. So when you're writing a script from your own idea, do you have a particular process? Do you, you know, use blue cards? Do you do the scene beats? Do you, do you just start writing? What's your process on an original idea? Or do you just start with a treatment and then you see if there's sort of interest in it and you can get development funding? What's your approach?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. There's a, a few different ways. I, I kind of probably subscribe a little bit to... Paul Schrader's uh, approach, I I heard him talk about Taxi Driver and some of his other scripts and saying that he, he thinks that cinema is an oral tradition, so much more so than a written tradition. So his view is that you should be able to tell someone a story before you write a word. So that it tests an idea. So a film like The Bank. I got to the point where I could tell someone the story of that film and and I could see if they got bored or if the twists and turns of it didn't work or and I think it's a really interesting exercise to take a story you're doing and just embrace that idea of, of, of trying to tell someone the story so I definitely do a lot of that oral storytelling work on how to tell a film I think everyone's so obsessed with it being on the page and you know, funding agencies and, and investors are all really good. They've got whole script departments that give you endless notes and, you know, twists and turns and, you know, plot points. and. But actually you, you could tear up all those notes and just say to the writer or the filmmaker, tell me your story, tell me, and then you should be able to go, you know. But in something like The Dry, you know, I should be able to tell you about this man who's, a detective who lives in the city who left his home 30 years before believed to be a killer who one day gets dragged back to the town of his ch- you know i should be able to tell it like that and see in your eyes the moments where you kind of start checking your messages <laughs> you, um, i remember my, my wife uh, jane who's the secret weapon in my career she casts the film and tv that i direct um, we weren't even married when I did the bank. It was early kind of dating and the poor thing, you know, sitting at dinner and I said, I've got, I've got this idea for a film. And I remember telling her the story of the bank, you know, <laughs> the poor thing had to sit there for an hour and have me tell the film. But but it really tested the work. So so I probably I probably use that old tradition. And then writing the scripts, I'm a real kind of like, you know, putting the cake in the oven and it, and it gradually rises up <laughs> as opposed to, I guess the the visual art equivalent would be I do a lot of sketching before I start painting. So the first drafts of my films that I've written are usually like 10 pages long or 12 pages or 14 pages. Like I don't go, I don't break it all down intellectually and then write it forensically. I just start at the beginning and start at the end. So there's a document for the bank which is 12 pages long. It's got four lines of dialogue only, but I was just trying to get this story that I was telling people into a document, and then it fleshed out. It fleshed out as I wrote it, and ended up in the hundred and five page script that it was, you know. And similarly with that film, the the writer Tony McNamara, who's an incredible writer, he did some work on that and fleshed. You know, if I look back at my writing, I can't singularly kind of claim the authorship of any of it. Um, because then you add actors to it who improvise. and But, yeah, so that's a long and rambling way, Leah, of saying that <laughs> <laughs> I kind of end up with these quite small, lean documents as the first thing I write.
0: That's a great insight, yeah. I mean, clearly you're a great collaborator and you're open to wherever the best ideas come from and you kind of combine them with your own and it evolves into something that's greater than any one of you could come up with on your own. That, that's For me, that's a great director because it is such a collaborative medium and often you've got all these incredibly talented people in the different departments coming together. And for me, that's the most exciting thing about filmmaking, actually getting to work with these incredibly talented people and seeing what surprises and things yeah. and this and that they bring to it. And it's just kind of like you know you as the director you're trying to bring it to the boil together at the same time aren't you to to watch what surprising magic happens and when it does it's like oh my god that is so cool
1: yeah yeah i've read a polish filmmaker's book on filmmaking he had this great analogy he said that directing was uh say you've got a wall that you want to grow a beautiful vine over the entire wall he said you plant seeds along the bottom of the wall And he said, you water them and you nourish them and you fertilize them and they start growing up the wall. He said, the first thing to note is they're growing up the wall of their own volition. But he said, but in order to make a really good vine on the wall, you have to start threading and entwining them together as they continue to grow themselves. And his analogy was, that's how you work with all your creative team. You don't grow for them. They're all creatively contributing, but you're entwining them together as they grow up the wall. Now, and that's that's directing, and it's really stayed with me. Um, you can't do the jobs for people. You know, they are specialists in their area with great creative skill.
0: Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I like that, man. You that was a good good catch from your pocket of your earbud there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, no, this is, this is uh, technologically only just working for me. Now it's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, classic. Yeah, well, we'll move on from the bank. By the way, love that film. Absolute cracker. I mean, it's interesting as you were telling me about the oral storytelling there, it occurs to me that even the art films, the really good ones, are also high concept in a way in that they're able to be clearly articulated and communicated. And there's many things you do along the way that make it, you know, more obvious or less obvious as far as performances and pacing and everything else. But a good movie is still high concept, whereas, you know, traditionally we're kind of like, you know, oh, there's the high concept, you know, bad tentpole film, and then there's the the meandering art film over here. (laughs) Uh, I think
1: you're right. Like the um, interesting thing about cinema is that it does work really well when it's an idea you know, just grabs you. I, I heard the uh, Roger Deacons podcast um, with uh, Joel Cohen and Joel Cohen was asked about his recent work in TV versus film. And he said something which really stuck with me. You know, he said, you know, look, the issue for us is we love endings. You know, one of the great things we love in storytelling is endings. Television is a beginning and a middle and a middle and a middle and a middle. <laughs> you know? And I do think what I like about cinema and and, and novels, it's like when you're given a novel and you read it, you know, if it's a great author you love, that this author will take you to an end point. You know, there'll be a big idea here and it will take you to an end point that will resolve in some way that may surprise you, excite you. And and cinema does that too. You go into the cinema and it goes dark and you begin and you know that in a hundred and... 10 minutes or whatever, you're going to be brought to the end of something in a way. And that's why I think these big, higher concept films, they're challenging. But, you know, I mean, I love um, uh, science fiction. I read science fiction. It's a guilty pleasure. I, it's in, on the bucket list somewhere in my life. I'm putting it out there. <laughs> I really want to direct something that's science fiction. I haven't yet. But a lot of science fiction has really great first act setup, it sets up these ideas so well you know and the middle is interesting and complicates it but it's very hard to bring it home in a really big conceptual way and i and i and i think that um you know cinema does this really well which is speaking to your idea of the kind of high concept thing i think people shouldn't be afraid of it i think cinema is a great form for having a big chunky idea children of men you know that amazing film based on the incredible novel a world where children haven't been born it's a great idea there is a world that is dying because children haven't been born for 20 years and in that world a woman appears who is pregnant now, now I'm there yeah I'm going to watch that <laughs> you know, it's a great idea and then you put Clive Owen these great cast an amazing filmmaker And then that says to me as a high concept film, where on earth are they going to take me at the end of this film? You can make a TV series of that that goes for 10 seasons. That's all fine too. But for me personally, I love the idea of that kind of pleasure of being in the cinema. You know, what's the old adage they say? You want something to happen to your hero, but you fear it won't. You want this woman with the child to survive this, but you fear it won't. You're on the edge of your seat the whole time. You want the world to survive this terrible time of childless dystopia, but fear it won't. So, anyway, I, I mean, that's of great interest to me. So I, I say go for it with big, high-concept ideas. I, I love them.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. And I think just with the sort of overload of content out there and the short attention span, I think you need that, you know, to cut through, don't you? You need that yeah. strong idea to cut through. Um, yeah. Mate, Tell me about you, you, because you've adapted a few novels and obviously with the dry you have from the Jane Harper novel, what's your process to adapting a novel, sort of concise process? <laughs> 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 yeah, look,
1: I think, I think um, they're two different forms. In, in some ways the feature film is more easily served by uh, adapting from a short story and a big miniseries works well from a novel I was lucky to work on. Barracuda, you know, incredible novel as a four part for TV. That was easier than if it was a movie. Um, And even then, we couldn't handle everything in that book. So, you know, I find the adaptation very challenging. It's like you've kind of got to distill some qualities. It's like a haiku version of the novel. It's, it's impossible to capture it all. You know, enter the massive challenge of the dry, two crimes, two time periods, you know, so many moving parts. You've got to have suspects, you've got to have red herrings. You know, how do you distill that into a film? Um, and that's its own incredible challenge. I, I'm just returning to to reading a lot more in in recent times just because i love the rich complexity and depth and surprise of being in the hands of a great author's work on the page and you approach at adapting great works with incredible trepidation and humility actually (laughs) because don't
0: fuck it up yeah that's exactly
1: right yeah jane Harper's book she's sold a million copies she's got fans that are you know tweeting and you know you think oh my god if i get this wrong they're going to come to my house and
0: find me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, totally. (laughs) Oh, totally. No, I think you did a great job. It was really atmospheric, which I liked. I liked the use of sound design. And, you know, I mean, it's really, it's a good old fashioned murder mystery, but it's cinematic, it's atmospheric. It took me into another world and you know, I got lost there for a few hours and right. it it had the classic, okay, is it this person? Is it that person? Is it the first person, you know, they met? You know, often in Murder Mysteries it's the first person they come across and, you know, the least likely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, <laughs> I, I enjoyed all of that and, you know, clearly it was shot well and technically well executed but you didn't try and get too tricky with it either and I think coming from a novel, that's hard to do. <laughs> Because there was was so much in the novel.
1: Yeah, we talked a lot. We tested it. and Look, it was really tricky. It's the longest uh, edit of anything I've done. I mean, it it, uh, involved reshoots and plotting and things we didn't understand weren't going to work. I mean, audiences are really, really smart in this genre. They're watching the best crime writing in the world on television. And so to go to the movies, to go and see a crime film at the movies, the bar is so high. That you have to meet, and so it was. It was tricky and, and tough, and fun, and challenging. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, I directed some eps of the Doctor Blake Mysteries, oh, okay. um, so it gave me, uh, you know gave me a good insight into the challenges and the structural um, sort of evolution of these things. And um, But, you know, when you're doing one of those series, you can, oh, I got to watch the few episodes, the first couple of episodes and went, okay, that worked, that didn't. And so the tone and so yeah. much of it has worked out. So um, But when you're creating a film, like you said, you've got to kind of create that whole um language for that film and you don't have the benefit of looking at the earlier couple of epsons and <laughs> seeing, seeing what worked and what didn't so yeah it's a it's a challenge and um but yeah, mate, yeah good good job on that hey what's your i mean your approach as far as rehearsal and on set do you shoot the rehearsal do you do a, a line reading what's your approach with the actors
1: yeah I think over the years I've kind of come to focus on this idea that you have to rehearse the the scene to get it truthful and I think Jane Campion said something like this you get it truthful and then you shoot it as fast as you can so you're looking for a truth rather than some kind of per- perfection or something so you and so I'm very nervous about over-rehearsing dialogue and scenes. It's this fear that I'll get it right in the rehearsal room. You only need with film to get something right once. And ideally when you're filming. Whereas say in the theater, when I used to direct in theater, you're trying to get actors to a point where they can do performances the same every night for months, even when they've got no motivation or no, but they still have to deliver it. So it's a technical skill. So you rehearse in a different way. Whereas I think film and television is about funneling performance to a moment where it's truthful and you shoot it and you capture it, lightning in a bottle and then you move on. So that's probably the technique that I've evolved. It's kind of just preparing, discussing, exploring. Um, I've become on set quite old fashioned. I kick everyone out, you know, just me, the first AD, the DP just play around, rehearse it. It's feeling almost there, invite the crew in, show them what we're doing, then shoot it really fast. And, not, and try not to let the technical manifestation of how you shoot it kind of inhibit getting there. And, you know, cause it's, it's, it's so tricky, you know, filmmaking is such an industrial process and you're trying every day on set to make it feel like you're splashing paint on a the canvas. These two things are in constant conflict and you know i think i've evolved a kind of probably lighter more relaxed way of directing as a result but you know there's all variations i mean i love the actress rachel griffiths i've directed her a couple of times she does this thing which i just it's just fantastic like at the end of a, a scene you know and i'll say okay i've got it we can move on and rachel will go just let, give me one more and and i'll give her a take and she'll just do something completely left to feel almost to bust the scene and two out of three times it's not right but that one time in three It's kind of genius, you know, and I've had that example with her and then had to redo the scene because she's discovered something in the scene that I hadn't discovered. So I think I've learned over the years too that all different actors require different techniques and so there's no dogma about it. I've I've also seen films, I must say, that I've loved and I hear how they were directed and I go, God, that's the antithesis of how I work, but the film's a work of genius. So I I don't in any way represent that I've found some magical path. It's just this is how I how I enjoy working, really, and how I feel like I get the best
0: work. Yeah, I think every situation's different, and I know you've done some fantastic TV work. In particular, absolutely love Deep State. Ah, oh, great. Yeah, big Mark Strong fan, and that blew me away, that series. Like, I think it's some of your best work. Absolutely loved it. And and I know the, the story. I mean, literally, you're on your way back from Europe. You got the call. A week later, you're in Morocco shooting. So clearly you had very little preparation time. I can't imagine you had any rehearsal time with the actors and here you are shooting this, I don't know, what is it, 20 million US series or 30? I mean, I don't know, it's got to be massive. So give us some insights onto that crazy project.
1: I just kind of had to pinch myself. I'd gone to a TV festival in France with Barracuda, and that young actor had won a prize. I came back through London. Barracuda was on BBC Three at the time. And my agent said, oh, there's a project. They're looking for a director. So I uh, I went and uh, met with the producers and the show creator, uh, Matthew Parkhill, and uh, he'd seen Balabar and really liked it. And I just talked about, you know, shooting in Morocco. I had to fly that Sunday. <laughs> I, you know, it's all pretty crazy. And so I got back after the meeting and my agent rang and said look I think you've got this job and so I I rang my wife and my daughters at the time 14 15 whatever and I said look I've been offered this job in Morocco but it's like eight months work in Morocco and I'd have to leave and blah blah blah." and I obviously can't do it I've got a family and everything and it came out of nowhere and I, I woke up the next morning and Jane had sent me this email signed by her and my daughters saying we'd love you to do it you know we really support you doing it you deserve it going I mean it, it lined up with the year I turned 50 as well so I, I consider it to be the greatest 50th birthday present <laughs> although a friend did say that's kind of a bit too quick for your wife to be agreeing to let you go for that long um but no I felt so supported by my family so then I took off and uh and had I must say one of the great craziest adventures of my career. You know, wonderful creative team. It was also testing me in a world where I had no collaborate. Like it was all new crew. I didn't know anyone. I was in a culture with that spoke other languages. I was working with people I didn't know. I, you know, working with actors like Mark Strong, who you know just you know I was starstruck when I first met him. I think he's one of the great actors and. Yeah um and had this incredible adventure and also you know that series it's political which i love but it's also like you know the born identity on tv i mean i got to i got to direct you know all those you know rooftop sniper fights and you know i always wanted to direct people running through markets and jumping over things (laughs) i blew three cars up i crashed motorbikes it was like the guilty pleasure element of it was so much fun i I had i had a ball and then of course the family came and visited and spent time in morocco and we did all the post-production in in london and and i also got to work with extraordinary creatives on that project
0: yeah very very cool what was the uh working with mark strong what was the approach on set similar to what you talked about earlier or was it um it was so big and so many you know technical aspects and logistics did you have to have all the crew around when you were? Rehearsing, or what was the approach?
1: I think I actually managed to get much faster. Thankfully, I directed TV, although, you know, it's not as fast as some of the TV I directed in Australia, um, but it was still pretty, pretty demanding. So I, I knew how to turn scenes around reasonably quickly. Um, but I still think I managed to get the time to rehearse enough to feel confident that we were ready to shoot the scenes. Uh, someone like Mark brings a lot to it, you know, a lot of preparation. A lot, like, so it didn't never felt like the scenes were that far away from unlocking. You know, it's very different if an actor brings something and you look at it and it's completely different to what it needs to be. And so you've yeah. got forty-five minutes to shoot the scene, and you've got to re-rehearse it to kind of, you know, because you're not you're not getting massive rehearsal time with actors. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many casts in that they're flying in and yeah. you're meeting them the night before and then you're shooting with them.
0: Yeah. And so when you would turn up for a recce with the crew, would you have had a shot list together already or would you just look at it there and with the DP kind of go, all right, here we go. This is gonna be our master this way and we'll come in for coverage here. Would you do that with the DP at the time or did you go in with a, a clear shot list and stick pretty closely to it?
1: Yeah, no, I, w- I think cause I was quite nervous doing a, a job outside my comfort zone. I did have shot lists and I kind of knew what I would need to get it covered. But in many ways that was just there so I could tear it up. Uh, David Higgs, the DP, he's, um, you know, he'd shot Guy Ritchie films like Rock and Roll and he's fantastic. And we used to love just getting the scene kind of right and then going, okay, let's, you know, so having the flexibility to kind of look at the scene uh, with open eyes and then decide what the coverage would be. And that's probably something that's kind of come with more confidence. I I think it's, it's, a point where you feel like you can work something out in the moment. You know, I read that um, Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, you know, about this idea of all the experience you have leads to you to be able to make quick decisions that are based on all the experience that you've had. And I definitely think there is an adv- kind of advantage at a certain point, you know, when you've been directing for a long time. Um, the danger of course is that you become set in your way. So it's, it's also about creatively trying to disrupt some of your um you know kind of your work can be inhibited by repeated practices yeah so it's also trying to disrupt the patterns that you've set um and you do that by having really strong creative voices around you who challenge you and but um but you know i think deep state a lot of that was probably shot as i love to shoot you know working it out on the day and Terrifying the producers who probably think you're not going to be able to get it shot in a day and somehow miraculously at the end of the day, everyone ends up back at the hotel in Casablanca having a beer going, yeah, I think we did okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How many minutes? Well, it was like that nice days. <laughs> <laughs> How many minutes on average were you shooting a day? Uh,
1: probably five or six, I think. Okay. Four or five, five or six. So okay. it wasn't, I mean, I've done 12. I mean, it'd be interesting when you did Dr. Blake Mysteries, what the schedule was like on that, was that, like we doing? Like I can't
0: remember. We had, uh, I think we had eight or eight or nine days for the you know fifty-three minute ep. Um, yeah, that's actually
1: okay. Yeah. That's actually good, good schedule. I, yeah. d- I think that's not dissimilar, probably to what I to what I maybe I had eleven or twelve daily right. section.
0: Yeah, I think Doctor Blake like was probably healthier than some of the other you know one-hour dramas in Australia. They were really put the money on screen there. Yeah, um, and you could see it. You yeah. could see it in the production values. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mate, tell me sort of briefly about uh, The Slap and um, obviously working with Tony Ayres and a great team there and, you know, yeah. massive success with that series. I think that was the first TV you uh, directed, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, I, I and then it's great you got to chat to Tony as well, who I think is one of the most significant figures in Australian uh, television and a great filmmaker in his own right and has made and directed some incredible feature films. Uh, actually the very first tv I ever did was an episode of the tv show Rush Um, and uh, there was an actor Carol Mulvey in that that I really loved and John Edwards uh, who's obviously launched a lot of directors tv careers I just rang him and he'd always said to me if you ever want to direct tv I'll see if I can find something for you (laughs) and uh, he gave me an episode of Rush to direct and I actually had a ball it was a lot of fun and then uh, I'd moved to Melbourne actually and um relocated my family and my business to Melbourne and then Tony Ayres reached out with uh with the slap to be one of the four directors on that and it was a massive turning point in my career in lots of ways I mean I loved doing that it was incredible and remains something that I'm so proud of and uh and I think it came at a time when Australian television was, um, you know, on the on the way way up, as it has been. for, You know, and I mean, a lot of great TV had been made before the slap, of course, but it was more just the beginning of the world shifting to this kind of um, yeah. these limited series, really. Yeah, which no,
0: is great. Great timing, mate.
1: Yeah, and so Tony, I, I and I've worked with him many times since, and hope to keep working with him. He's a very, very close friend and and an incredibly creative person and a deep deep thinker about storytelling t- and politics and you know he's he's going to be a very significant figure in our in our national screen culture for many years to come
0: yeah and just such a lovely guy too
1: yeah i know i know and and you know kind of playful and yeah mischievous in the work and it, nothing it doesn't feel all constrained and polite it feels you know as, as a director working with him is just incredible really you feel supported and challenged and pushed and you feel like you've got a friend that you're creatively investigating this material with it's really really wonderful
0: yeah yeah that's great mate let's swing back to a couple of your films because we're going to run out of time here mm. mate we could talk all day but i know you you're in dupree on monday for your next feature aren't you which you shoot in that's four right. weeks um we'll come yeah. back to that in a minute but um yeah briefly on balabo i'm almost kind of want to talk about these for people to hear and and follow them up because there's some iconic australian films you've made uh, balabo and paper planes two ends of the spectrum um briefly on balabo i mean you got to satiate your political interests combined with an incredible true story um Tell us a little bit about that and I know you, it was gutsy the way you did it, shot with a tiny crew and yeah, tell us a little more about that.
1: Yeah, like I uh, have to pinch myself really in my career where different work's taken me and I've been back to to Timor-Leste many times and taken my children there and feel connected to that incredible country, which is only an hour's flight from Darwin and worth a visit and um It's somewhere, kind of almost as a rite of passage for young Australians, I think it's somewhere people should go and kind of the history that we share um, comes together in stories like Balabo. So to be allowed to go, you know, into that country, the UN was still on the ground, it was quite a tricky time and to take a small crew and to film in the real places where events had happened and to recreate big moments of history for that country with the local people you know, the invasion of Dili, um, December the 9th, 1975, you know, and the Timorese army turning up to play the uh, the invading Indonesian uh, force that arrived that day. And, you know, I think it was it was life-changing for me, really, and and so far beyond the film itself as a work of cinema, like, you know, more um, profound a, a kind of influence on me. I... I I kind of went there the first time I went there I, in research and I was kind of really, really depressed actually when I got back and it was just seeing, you know, the kind of inequity, I guess, um, of a near neighbour. Um, but the next trips I went on all kind of revealed to me how um, optimistic the Timorese people are and I think that spirit of profound optimism and the great triumph that the Timorese found their way to independence really shaped making that film so the film began about when i developed it about five australian guys and you know their tragedy of what happened to them and then broadened out to become the story of a nation that found its path to independence despite the um counter view to that of many countries including Australia's. <laughs> so uh yeah no i'm i'm really kind of you know can't kind of look at my career with any great perspective but I feel like that's one thing that has really changed and shaped me as a filmmaker yeah
0: it's one of the great Aussie films mate very powerful let's go to the other end of the spectrum with Paper Planes a family film I saw it with my daughter and it was an absolute joy to see a fantastic Australian family film at the cinema with my daughter where you know most of the family films that i'd seen with her or that she wanted to go and see were american films and um yeah so that was a, a lovely contribution to our culture there
1: <laughs> yeah i you know i kind of felt like i hadn't made a kid's film and i had children i felt of crazy um and i also saw an opportunity really i thought there were a lot of young parents you know like you at the time and other friends who had young kids and you know, who were just taking their kids to see American films every summer and that their children were growing up thinking that the heroes of the world all had American accents and lived in, you know, Montana.
0: And in mansions.
1: <laughs> yeah, and in a mansion. And so I felt that we could find a way to tell an Australian family film. I mean, my whole school in the Blue Mountains, we got bust to see Storm Boy at the local cinema everyone cried you know i remember coming back from it and it was an australian family film that we saw as a young kids and i wanted to make that film and so paper planes um you know interestingly an incredible um friend and producer katherine slattery was working with me and she'd seen this australian story about these two young guys and they'd competed in paper plane championship and she said, I think there's something in this. And uh, it it set this project on a journey of many years. It was hard to get made. It was really almost impossible to finance because everyone kept going, you know, paper planes, a film for the whole family from the director of Balibo just didn't quite make sense to investors. <laughs> it, it was probably the trickiest film to finance. And no one thought that I could do it, really. In fact, what did someone say? Um Films get financed not because 100 people want them to be made. They get financed because 99 people don't want them to get made and one person does. And financing is about finding the one person that does and making sure you remind the 99 that didn't <laughs> when it's successful <laughs> that they, they miss their chance.
0: <laughs> uh, that's gold. Mate, it was a precious film and, I mean, it was massive.
1: Yeah, no, it was a really big, big success, big commercial success. So, um, and that maybe in some ways allowed my company to expand into areas that we hadn't before because, you know, that commercial success led us to really start doing a whole range of smaller emerging films with quite diverse filmmakers that we're working on at the moment. So almost shifting the business a little bit to try and start looking at the next generation and seeing what we can do to Um, support and encourage that next generation of filmmakers and so you know the economic and commercial impact of paper planes was quite good in that regard as well.
0: Yeah it's one of the cool things about you mate you've helped a lot of others along the way you've produced films for others you've helped a lot with Screen Australia or the earlier incarnations yeah you've had great support from the funding bodies and subsidies and things in your films, but you're certainly given a lot back and, you know, you've deserved and created your own luck, I guess you can say.
1: Yeah, look, I was very fortunate that I was mentored by John Maynard as a producer, and he really instilled in me this kind of view that you need to be part of the culture and politically that you're contributing to. And that involves being on boards, contributing, mentoring, like a broader lobbying biting the hand that feeds you occasionally with the government. Um, and, you know, I've been on many groups of filmmakers that have gone to Canberra on both sides of politics. And, and then, you know, uh, Peter Garrett, when he was the Minister for the Arts, invited me to be on the board of Screen Australia when that was established. And I kind of see that as a necessary part of the industry. I, th- I think, for, you know, looking to the future, I'm kind of worried about the opportunities available to an emerging generation of young people you know i look at australia as a nation that's just doubled the cost of an arts degree doubled midway through COVID, they announced they're doubling i mean i just lunacy lunacy you know i did an arts degree and here i am you know 33 years later and have built a career from that and a lot of these politicians did as well Um, so i think that you know we we have to really make sure that we're a generation that does everything we can to make sure the generation that is young now lives a better life than us. I mean, I I remember someone saying, you know, that history of civilization has been each generation fighting to make sure the next generation can live a better life than them and we have reached the point where we are the first generation where our children will have less opportunity than us and I think it's a devastating situation. And I think we have time to change that. You know, the legacy of the COVID and the economic legacy is gonna be a burden that that generation will carry. But there are lots of really wonderful things that we can do and have the power to do uh, economically to make the future bright for our youngest, you know. Um, I guess I think about this a lot because my eldest daughter just finished school this year. And I look at that generation and. And, uh, and I hope for the best for them. But I definitely think um, the screen industries have to be really, really careful about making sure that we have generational change. And, you know, I produced my first film, The Boys, when I was 27. You know, I remember hearing Byron Kennedy produced Mad Max when he was 26. You know, and I think we kind of have to say, well, we, we can't from our entrenched position of safety now go, oh, 26-year-olds don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so... Yeah, watch this space. We're doing some stuff in this area, actually.
0: So, sounds good. Yeah, it's important we preserve our Australian culture and voice, and um, you know, see it on screens. No, it's good, mate. Good on you. Hey, um, just about to wrap up. Tell me, what are you starting on next week? What do you start shooting in four weeks?
1: Yeah, I'm, I've adapted um, Tim Winton's novella uh, about the ocean blueback. And it's the big environmental film about the sea. Um, it's about a little girl and her mother. Well, it's a little boy in the book, but in the adaptation, it's a little girl and, and a fish. Uh, it probably falls kind of in the territory of, you know, kind of whale rider with a touch of like, you know, my octopus teacher or, you know, these stories which look at, the natural world and create a sense of a compassion we should have for the natural world through showing the sentient nature of living things. Um, And he does that, Tim, so beautifully with the story of this blue groper. But it's a big film, big epic film about the ocean, you know, a kind of 30-year-old world-renowned marine biologist returns to this small bay uh, to spend time with her elderly mother and remembers her childhood and and it's kind of galvanised in her resolve to save the threat to the world's coral reefs. So, you know, in, in other ways, it's kind of a film for the Greta Thunberg generation. Um, it's about activism and changing the world. So I think in my film that I've made, it's got a little bit of paper planes, but it's also a broader kind of um, scale of cinema about the ocean, which I see is one of the great challenges that we're, we're facing, you know, a 21st century civilization is facing in the many different environmental issues we face, the health of our oceans is going to be something that we that we have to deal with and soon and quickly. So the film will fit into the spirit of um, political cinema that I've made.
0: Sounds powerful, mate, and no doubt you'll bring plenty of heart to it as you do with all your projects.
1: Yeah, I hope to. I've f- found some amazing young actors with the help of uh, Jane, who's casted, and um, there's some big names that'll get announced soon too. Uh, but at the heart of it, these young actors are incredible, one of whom has never even acted before. But I've got that excitement of of what it's going to be like to direct her on screen. She's really wonderful.
0: Beautiful, mate. Well, that's a good point to wrap up. Very exciting. And, uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to head out and see The Dry and then um, the, the Tim Winton Project coming soon. Great to talk to you, Lee. It
1: was uh, great to have this catch-up too. It's been been too long, mate.
0: Good on you, mate. Thanks for your time. All the best for a great shoot. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of The Blank Canvas for 2021. I really enjoyed re-watching some of Robert's work and discovering some of the gems I'd missed. For more info about him and his work, head to arenamedia.com.au or search his name on imdb.com, which is the internet movie database, to get a list of his credits. And, of course, head to the cinema if you're in Australia to see his latest film, The Dry. It's a wonderful film. For listeners outside Australia, do an internet search of the film to find out when it's released in your territory. Next week's episode features another of Australia's finest creative talents, the actor and Logie-winning actress, Kat Stewart. Remember, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please write a review and rate the show and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're on. Of course, feel free to tell your friends and share the love on social media. Until next week, live large.
1: The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.